welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 17, and we're approaching the end of Operation Savannah, which had started out so well, but was rapidly turning into a strategic nightmare for the South Africans. One of the fastest mechanized invasions since World War II had resulted in the SADF now deep inside Angola, and in the case of Brigadier Roos, who was a liaison officer based in Ambries with the FNLA, he was cut off on the coast to the north of the capital, Luanda. It was mid-November 1975, and the MPLA and Cubans were starting to move, determined to rid the country of the FNLA. Meanwhile, to the south, UNITA was holding on to its main gains, which now extended from the southwest African border to the main railway line linking the coastal ports of Benguela and Lobito and the resource-rich Katanga region of neighboring Zayam. The political strategy was about to come under pressure. Although the U.S., France and UNITA, as well as the FNLA, had all requested the South Africans remain inside Angola and support Jonas Savimbi, things were changing. Remember, Holden Roberto had decided to attack the capital with SADF support, an attack that ended in dismal failure along Luanda's death road. Brigadier Ruas now faced possible capture along with South Africa's three 5.5-inch guns that had flown into northern Angola to assist the FNLA in their hapless assault on the capital. On the 10th of November. As I explained last episode, he had already considered committing suicide rather than being captured. The guns were now parked under mango trees in Umbries, awaiting extraction, along with 26 SADF soldiers who had worked with Rus. The artillery teams also remained, and the SADF faced an embarrassing international situation, with close to 40 men and all this equipment trapped in the north of Angola. The South African government had hidden the truth about the SADF on the ground from the public despite obvious proof to the contrary. Now there were more than 300 soldiers leading UNITA and FNLA units, all fighting alone, and Pretoria had to move fast. The plan to fly the guns out had hit a big snag, and Brigadier Ruiz met with Holden Roberto, the FNLA leader, and suggested a quick secondary attack to secure the north bank of the Dande River, and also requested that the FNLA continue its stalled offensive on Lukala and Malangi. These were two towns to the south of the capital, along the main road to Zaire. However, the FNLA was in no shape to renew their offensive, and Pretoria completely overestimated their strength. Cuban and Russian ships were now docking, bringing MiGs and other aircraft into Angola after the SADF's rush to the capital had jolted both Fidel Castro and Leonid Brezhnev. The die was cast, so to speak. Brezhnev had hesitated to support the MPLA, while Castro had been rather more proactive, but now the American support for South Africa and the brazen invasion by the SADF had changed Moscow's view. They were 100% behind Augustino Neto's MPLA and its FAPLA armed wing. As this escalation of hardware increased, the SADF still had not managed to fly out their all-important artillery, and now it was the third week of November. There was no way a lumbering C-130 or two could make it to Ambrose and back without the likely possibility of being shot down by the fighter jets. The window for this extraction by the SA Air Force had closed. The CIA had also withdrawn without telling the South Africans. The first Brigadier Ruiz found out about this was when he realized by the 24th of November that the Americans had quietly decamped without prior warning. Unlike the very public humiliation in the panicked departure from Saigon in Vietnam only two years before, this group of CIA operatives had been extracted without any fanfare because, of course, they were never in Angola in the first place. The South African Navy had been operating along the coast of southern Angola since the start of Operation Savannah. The anti-submarine frigate SAS President Kruger under the command of Captain R.D. Kingon had spent three weeks loafing about, as Willem Steenkamp puts it. Now they had an emergency. 
The SAS Kruger was under strict radar and radio silence and in mid-November had been steaming along the coast in the vicinity of the Kaneni River, which borders Angola and southwest Africa. Ambrose was more than a thousand kilometers away to the north. The SADF HQ had thoughtfully planned to place the ship relatively close in case there was a need for an urgent evacuation and that moment had arrived. The Defence Force Boffins had ordered that a Puma helicopter be based aboard the SAS Kruger along with extra automatic weapons. There was also a cutter boat lashed on deck as well as several Gemini inflatables that are associated with special force operations. Towards the end of November, the Kruger's sister ship SAS President Stain under Captain A.S. Davis was dispatched to relieve her. The cover story was that the SAS Stain was going on a fisheries protection patrol. It wasn't true. Captain Davis had very specific orders. He was to maintain station at a position along the central Angolan coast, avoiding any contact with other vessels, and to evacuate personnel at Ambriz, Ambrizeto, Benguela or Lobito at short notice. He was also told to monitor and record ground force transmissions for later analysis. Like Kingon, Davis was ordered to maintain strict radio and radar silence from when the vessel departed Cape Town, only to be broken in a dire emergency. The SAS Stain rendezvoused with the SAS Kruger and took over the Gemini boats, the Puma helicopter and automatic weapons, as well as a special maritime map that was to prove a bit of a lifesaver in a short while. They then steamed northwards up the Angolan coast. A few days later, on the 27th of November, the strict radio silence was broken and Brigadier Ruas sent an emergency request for an evacuation for his liaison team and the three artillery crews plus guns. Davis checked the map and realized that Umbridge was not suitable for his frigate to get close enough to shore so that the Gemini boats and the cutter could load up both men and artillery and escape. He suggested a harbor to the north known as Ambrizet, today known as Nzeto. That was 70 kilometers north of Umbris along the coastal road, which was now almost impassable due to the ongoing rainy season. This was going to be a close call for the South Africans. Luckily, the fast-moving frigate was only a few hours from Ambrizet, and Captain Davis ordered full steam ahead. They would arrive off the port at around 2300 hours that night, and Davis asked Brigadier Roos to hurry immediately so they could conduct the evacuation in the dark that evening. It was then that Roos had to break radio silence again and send a message to naval headquarters back in South Africa that he was going ahead with the evacuation. The operation was approved. If successful, Davis would radio a single message, super, and if a failure, he would message the word duck. This was humor in the face of extreme danger. The SAS stain was known in the Navy as Super Duck because of the number of the birds that appeared on its crest. It was also a kind of joke on Davis himself because he was large and tubby and quite a character. He was fluent in French and in fact could hardly speak Afrikaans and was prone to riding around the naval base at Simonstown on a little scooter. He had also seen a lot of action in World War II and was now approaching retirement. It would be a shocking international incident if Captain Davis and his frigate were sunk by the Russians or Cubans lurking nearby. Davis ordered the stain's nameplate to be removed and a tattered and dirty ensign to be flown, while all the usual glittering chromed and brass bits had to be covered with dirt in an attempt at reducing the chance of being recognized. Things began to go wrong soon after the stain arrived off the shore of Ambrizette. Ruiz had broken radio silence again and said he was still on the road north from Ambriz. It had rained and the road was inundated and he would not make the rendezvous by 2300 hours. The new evacuation time was to be 0500 the next morning, the 28th of November. 
That was close to dawn, and the South Africans were trying to get their men and equipment out of the way before the sun rose and the residents of the harbour town awoke. Meanwhile, Davis was picking up increased radio traffic from the Russians, who were not far away to the south in Luanda. While the Russian ships were generally located around the capital, he was more concerned about their planes, which were flying up and down the coast between Luanda and the oil-rich enclave of Kabinda on Angola's northern border with Zaire. Worse, he'd picked up both Russian ships and planes on his radar screens, and Davis was now aware that he could be sailing into a trap. Had Brigadier Ruiz been captured, and now the frigate was in a situation where it could be attacked and sunk, that would be a double disaster for the South Africans. An arms embargo had been imposed on the country by the United Nations after Pretoria refused to begin the process of elections in southwest Africa, so replacing the frigate would have been all but impossible. Secondly, the political fallout and propaganda damage done to the National Party leadership would have been significant. Remember, Parliament still did not know that the SADF was fully involved in Angola, although in 1975 it was pretty much a one-party parliament of nationalists. The UN General Assembly had passed Resolution 3411C on the 18th November 1975, which proclaimed that the United Nations and the international community have a special responsibility towards the oppressed people of South Africa and their liberation movements and towards those imprisoned, restricted or exiled for their struggle against apartheid. Only Israel, Taiwan and Chile were prepared to support the SADF, along with other pariah nations in the world, including Latin American military dictatorships such as Brazil, Uruguay and Argentina. None of these countries could build a frigate if the SAS stain was sunk. Davis was now waiting off Ambrizetto full of concern as his frigate rode the Atlantic swells. Sunrise was set at 7 hours 10 and the moon would rise at 0200 hours 30. They had a very short window from 5 to 7 in the morning to evacuate dozens of men and artillery, along with the encryption machines and other vital equipment. Davis inched closer to the coast on the morning of the 28th. At 0400 hours, Brigadier Rua signaled that his men were now in position close to the harbour. But it had no pier, although it had a storm wall, so the evacuation was shifted to the beach in the hope that the large swells were contained. The weather now played its part. Instead of a bright moonlit night evacuation, navigation was being hampered by the fact that it was heavily overcast and Davis crept closer to the rendezvous point, helped by the excellent map. But the overcast weather actually assisted the South Africans restricting the Cuban and Russian surveillance from the air. The biggest danger apart from being spotted was the large sandbar just offshore. At 400 hours 24 and as the SAS stain was around 3.5 nautical miles from the beach, Two vehicles' headlights were spotted on the land. They were flashing recognition signals at 10-second intervals. Davis quickly ordered a reply to be flashed, and Ruiz radioed to report there were no enemy forces nearby. At 400 hours 40, Davis launched the three Gemini inflatables under the command of Lieutenant R.N. Early. Then he ordered the cutter to be lowered into the Atlantic, and the evacuation was on. This was not going to be easy. There were three-meter swells, although the wind had dropped and the sea was oily rather than rough. About a quarter of a mile from shore, Early signaled to Ruiz using a lamp covered with red masking tape. Brigadier Ruiz responded immediately. He appeared to be safe, and Early breathed a sigh of relief. They had partly feared that the whole plan could have been a ruse, but now time was of the essence. He took the cutter and one Gemini into shore and close to the seawall. The heavy swells were calmer, and then he knew that the plan would work. Early's Gemini hit the shore quite close to Ambrizetto Town Square, closer than he would have hoped. Meanwhile, the town's residents slept on, apparently blissfully unaware that there was a South African warship so close by. 
on the beach. The SADF had been divvied up into groups of five, but it suddenly became apparent to Lieutenant Early that he was going to run out of time. The sun would rise long before all the men and equipment were aboard the SAS Stain. It was time to fire up the Puma helicopter on deck, which would be used to lift the heavy communications and cryptographic gear. At 0545, Captain Ben van der Vestesen of the SAF Force took off along with his flight engineer, Sergeant B.B. Smith. Five minutes later, they landed at Ambrizetto. By now, the noise of the Puma, which is a very loud chopper, surely had woken residents, and yet no one moved in the town. The first to clamour aboard the Puma were Brigadier Ruas and two of his men. Captain Malcolm Kinghorn, based in Ambrys with the Brigadier, had basically ordered his commanding officer aboard. No arguments permitted. Ruas duly clamoured up into the Puma. The helicopter returned to the ship and made four more trips to the beach, lifting out equipment and personnel, while the rest were raced through the waves on board the Cutter and Geminis. At 600 hours 43, the last man climbed aboard the SAS Stain. The Puma was lashed down, the Geminis stored, and the Cutter chained on deck. It was time to beat a hasty retreat, and Captain Davis steamed out to sea full speed ahead. Back at Silvermine Maritime Communications Centre in Cape Town, Naval senior officers were starting to have serious misgivings about things having waited since five in the morning for word. Davis had still not reported either super or duck, and it was now 0900. Suddenly, Davis broke the silence with a confusingly cryptic message. Super successful duck. What did that mean? Was it a success, a super, or was it a failure, a duck? Later, it transpired that the signals officer had been confused by the original order and the tension back in South Africa only eased once that had been explained. Two days later, Brigadier Ruiz and his team were landed at Valfus Bay, halfway up the southwest African Atlantic coast. Captain Davis immediately turned the SAS stain around and set sail back towards southern Angolan waters. Operation Savannah was not over, and there were still SADF units inside the country. He may have been required to conduct another evacuation. Don't forget, folks, that of course this operation was not happening in a little Angolan vacuum. Back in South Africa, the end of 1975 and the beginning of 1976 was going to see a massive increase in black resistance to apartheid at the precise moment that its political leadership began to fixate on a military solution to every problem. Take Commandant Jan Breitenbach, who led Battle Group Alpha, as a case in point. He was still stuck in Angola, ordered to hold Lobito, while HQ figured out what to do about the FNLA and UNITA. At the same time, his brother, Brayton Breitenbach, was in court back in South Africa, standing trial as a terrorist. On the 26th of November 1975, Brayton Breitenbach was sentenced to nine years in jail for offences under South Africa's Terrorism Act, at the same time as his brother was fighting a covert war in a neighbouring country on behalf of South Africa. Brayton Breitenbach pleaded guilty to entering South Africa to start an organisation which would have been named either Atlas or Okela and intended to be the white wing of the banned African National Congress. Warfare in South Africa is full of stories of brothers who fight against each other. My previous podcast on the Anglo-Boer War featured the De Wet brothers. General Christian De Wet, a bitter Ender-Boer leader noted for his innovations and courage in fighting the British, and Piet De Wet, who joined the British and fought against the Boers and his brother. The Breitenbachs believed in two different political worlds, and it's incredible how they had the courage of their convictions. You can judge either, but you cannot fault their courage. One was fighting a war deep inside a foreign country, and the other was fighting a war for the rights of black South Africans. Both were fighters or soldiers. I guess one person's freedom fighter is another person's terrorist.
And so, we must stand back for a moment at this point to consider what else was going on in Angola. Guinea and the South Africans now controlled a huge area from the east-west road in the northern central region through Malange down to the southwest African border. The FNLA was still thought to be in control of northern Angola, while the Cuban and Russian-backed MPLA were in charge of a thin slither of territory from Luanda and just to the south all the way to the Zairean border. At first glance, the political outcome was still in balance, except for the OAU. Nations there hated the white South African government more than they feared Russia's proxy war mentality, which was expanding communism in newly independent African nations. A pivotal moment in any military exercise had emerged. What now? It was after Independence Day. The Americans were cooling off. The Russians and Cubans had escalated their military support for the MPLA. The African nations at the OAU were split between those who supported the MPLA and those who thought a proper election process would be the only way to ensure democracy. Remember, many of these African countries were grappling with their own post-colonial issues and were vassal states in a way of the countries of the Cold War, America and the Soviet Union mainly. Pretoria thought they could drive a wedge into the OAU, but what actually transpired is the SADF's role in direct military intervention doomed B.J. Forster's political dream of a white minority-dominated country accepted at the table of diplomacy by black-ruled African countries. And Pretoria's strategic plan was broken in two places. Firstly, the FNLA did not exist anymore as an army. It was shattered, and Holden Roberto would retreat to become an exile in Zaire within two months. This meant the MPLA would not be isolated in a slither of Angola, slowly running out of food and power as UNITA and the FNLA tightened their grip. For the Cubans, their gamble of supporting the MPLA had paid off. From now on, the real war was on one front, the South. Back in Pretoria, the French and American ambassadors were sent secret messages about what role they were prepared to take in the ongoing war in Angola. More was expected from the French than the Americans, French oil companies like Total were exposed in the oil-rich Cabinda province of Angola. So this was the second break point. The Americans had initially sourced most of the uranium for the atomic bombs from Zaire, but as that country's civil war appeared never-ending, they had shifted their sourcing of this strategic mineral elsewhere. They just weren't that interested in Zaire or even the oil-rich Cabinda enclave anymore. That partly explains why the CIA had suddenly disappeared and Brigadier Ruas was left high and dry. With that, we must halt and secure the perimeter. Next episode, we'll hear about what happened when the Pretoria government decided to reveal all at a press conference on December 1st, 1975, and what happened to Colonel Jan Breitenbach and Commandant Delva Linford and the hundreds of South Africans still deep inside Angola fighting on in Operation Savannah. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. You can also contact me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.